Amen. If you grab your Bible and open to Luke chapter 7, we are going to begin studying Luke 7 together. You will find that on page 1188 in the Pew Bible in front of you. Um, the Lord was so good to us and so gracious to us as we studied uh, through chapter 6 in our radical series. And now the Lord is uh, going to turn our attention in chapter 7 towards the issue of faith. So we will be together several weeks uh, talking about this issue of faith. And uh, I will be leaving Friday to go to India. And so I'm very grateful and very thankful to be able to go uh, as your servant to India. I have the great opportunity to be able to teach uh, in a seminary in India. So please pray for me. Uh, I'm very, very, very excited about uh, they have uh, given their, their pastors and church leaders will be traveling in. And I get 20 hours uninterrupted teaching time. I said, man, that's like a sermon and a half right there. <laughs> Amen. But not this morning. This morning we will be going swiftly. Are we all there? Luke chapter 7. Let's begin reading in verse 1. Luke 7 verse 1. Now he, Jesus, concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people and entered Capernaum. And a certain centurion servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. When they had already, when they were already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word and my servant will be healed. Verse 8, for I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returning to the house found the servant well who had been sick. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, thank you for this glorious, unbelievable story, Father, with so much truth and so much for us to glean from what you say here father i pray that you give us ears to hear now lord and god hearts that are receptive father to what you have to say to us in this time thank you lord for the opportunity to learn from your word in jesus name amen well the 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 question as you get to luke chapter 7 is simply this based on all that jesus just told us in his sermon in chapter 6, what is now going to happen? Because you have to understand, when you read through the Bible, there's nothing by chance in the Word of God. There's no happenstance. Nothing just sort of shows up out of nowhere. Everything is precisely placed in a specific order ordained by God and executed through the providential sovereignty of God to teach us and show us 
and to deliver us truth that we need. So when you study all that we've studied over the last seven weeks, then you come to this story. What is it that Jesus wants us to see here? And I I just think this is absolutely an amazing passage of Scripture. Notice in verse 1 how this begins. Now, when Jesus concluded all His sayings, what sayings? The sayings we just learned about in His sermon in chapter 6. When He concluded this sermon, in the hearing of the people, He entered Capernaum. In other words, this takes place immediately after the sermon in chapter 6. And so you see this interaction that immediately comes into play. And Jesus wants us to see in living flesh what it is He just got done preaching about. He's about to illustrate what all that sermon put together in a life would actually look like. And if we had time this morning, we could systematically go through these ten verses and we could see that Jesus taught us in His sermon... He taught us, just as a reminder, He taught us that we're to love others in Luke 6, 27, specifically our enemies or those we don't have to love. He taught us that we're to be generous, that we're to be givers in Luke chapter 6, verse 30. He taught us we're to be merciful in Luke chapter 6, verse 36. He taught us that we're to be forgiving in verse 37, to follow the right teachers in verse 40, to do good works, to bear much fruit in verse 43. And then he told us in verse 47 that we're to build our lives on a foundation of Jesus and Him alone for the storm is coming. Every single one of those principles is in the 10 verses I just read to you. So you're going to have to go home and figure it all out for yourself because we certainly don't have time to do them all. But they're all there. This is an unbelievable story how Jesus takes an entire sermon and brings it all together in one simple story. And so here's the, here's the question. What does it take to live out chapter 6? What does it take to actually embody, to actually take those principles and apply them to our lives and live them out day in and day out? And it takes... In one word, faith. It takes unbelievable faith. It takes such a, such a centralized, such a pinpointed faith to execute this radical life that Jesus has just laid out. Because in any other power other than faith, you and I will fail miserably. So let's look at these, uh, these unlikely circumstances, if you will, for a moment. First of all, I want you to see this unlikely officer. Verse 2 says that this centurion, he had a servant. The word doulos, it's a slave. The translators don't like the word slave, so they love to say servant. But it's a slave. And, and this uh, centurion loved him dearly, and his slave was sick. His servant was sick. Now, a centurion is a Roman commander. That means centurion. He has a, a, usually a hundred men under him. He's a very powerful person. He's a much feared person. He, he has a lot of, of influence in the community. And so he's sort of the one who is operating in a position of power, if you will. Now, the common way to view a slave would simply be as property. You know that. I know that. That's why that word makes us so uncomfortable. Slaves don't have rights. Slaves are just merely a means to an end. 
And yet this centurion is very unlikely in that this centurion seems to love this slave. Now, maybe this slave, you might say, was just a really skilled worker. Maybe this slave was very, very good at doing the things that the centurion needed done around the house, around his property, or on his estate. And so therefore, the centurion is worried about this slave and his sickness because he's so valuable to him as a slave. That's not the case. You see, because the word dear, that he's very dear to him, this this phrase was dear to him. It means to be deeply loved. It means to be precious. This centurion is so unlikely because he loved his slave. Now, that's just not normal. But this centurion, as we're going to see, is not normal in a lot of other ways as well. So the first thing I want you to see is how unlikely it is that this Roman official, this centurion, this is a military commander. This is somebody who is a man's man. This is a warrior. This is somebody who, when they tell you to do something, you do it. And yet the Bible says he he had deep affection and love for this slave. Now let's see this unlikely partnership. So there's an unlikely officer and an unlikely partnership. Verse 3. So when he heard about Jesus, he sent the elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. Verse 4. And when they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that the one for whom you should do this was is deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Now... Someone has told this centurion about Jesus. That's just jumps off the page. Because the centurion hears about Jesus and then sends religious leaders on his behalf to go to Jesus and ask Jesus to heal the servant who he loves. So there's all these unlikely scenarios going on where you have this military commander who loves a slave and yet on the other hand, someone has told him about Jesus. And so because he loves the slave and because he's heard about Jesus and because he believes that Jesus has the power to heal the slave, he goes to these religious leaders and says, can you help me? Will you go and tell Jesus that my servant whom I love is sick? And the religious leaders go and say, Jesus, you should do this because he's deserving, because he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. In other words, he's given a lot of money to building the church. He's been very helpful to us. He's been a blessing to us. He's a good man. So why exactly does the centurion send elders to go and talk to Jesus? Why doesn't the centurion go and talk to Jesus? I mean, this is clearly not a person who would be intimidated by confrontation. This is clearly not a person who would be intimidated to go and talk to Jesus normally. But this man sends other people to go on his behalf. Now, there's no doubt that he believes Jesus can heal his servant. Otherwise, he never would have sent anyone. But because he doesn't believe that Jesus would help a person like him, he sends the elders. You see, the the centurion is a religious outsider. 
He doesn't belong in sort of the religious climate. If the centurion were to come in here this morning, maybe somebody's in here this morning, you feel a little uncomfortable, you're a little out of your element, this isn't normally sort of the, the place you might be, someone invited you to come, and you're here and you look at this building and you think, well, you know, I don't know, this is kind of different, this is sort of... That's the way the centurion felt. The centurion was not somebody who felt like he belonged in religion and therefore he went to the people who did, the people who know, the insiders, because he felt unworthy. He didn't feel worthy. And, and that's the first indication that this centurion has a heart condition known as poorness of spirit. And isn't it interesting that that's where the sermon in chapter 6 started? And that we see there's a poor spirit here. There's a, there's a humility here that says, I, I, I can't really go to Jesus because He would never do this for a guy like me. You see, the Bible says in Psalm 138, one of the most frightening things that you could ever hear. The Bible says that though the Lord is on high, He regards the lowly, but the proud He knows from afar. That that is a staggering statement. What would it mean to be known from afar by God? To have a prideful heart is to be known from afar. So there's an unlikely officer. There's an unlikely partnership between this officer and these elders who have gone out on his behalf. And then we see it's going to yield an unlikely faith. Look at verse 6. So Jesus went to them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter into my house or under my roof. In other words, now we begin to see what's driving this centurion and why he's, he's, he's gotten some help here because he doesn't feel worthy. He is truly humble. And notice he addresses... Jesus as Lord. Notice what the elders say in verse 4. Notice the word that's missing in verse 4. Notice the elders, the, the religious people, they just come to Jesus and say, Jesus, you ought to do this because He deserves it, because He gave money, and because He loves our nation. And never do you hear the elders refer to Jesus as Lord. But the centurion, on the other hand, he sends word to Jesus and he says, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Lord... Don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy. You can't come into my house. I'm an outsider. You'll be ceremonially unclean if you come into the house of a, of a non-Jew. You can't do that, Lord. You see, he knows about Jesus and he knows about religion. But he's got a humble heart. He's got a poorness of spirit. And, and you begin to see that maybe he understands what Peter was saying to the religious council in Acts chapter 4 when he said, Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In other words, there's only one way and it's Jesus. And there's no other way. And all this religious stuff that you've got going on, all, all of these rules and regulations and all of these things that are going on with these religious people who just come and say, Jesus, you ought to do this because he's a good man, because he gave money to the synagogue. All these things are missing the point. But boy, it's coming into the bullseye down in, in verse 6 when we see this centurion refer to him as Lord. Lord. 
Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. I would never come to you. I love my servant, but I wouldn't come to you and ask you personally to come to my house to heal him because, Lord, I'm just a, I'm just a centurion. I'm a Roman. I'm an outsider. I, I don't, I don't belong where you are. Verse seven. Therefore, he goes on. He says, therefore, I did not think myself worthy to come to you, but say the word. And my servant will be healed. Now we get another indication of, of yet more understanding by this centurion. You see that? He says, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come in my house, but you don't even have to. All you have to do is say it and he's healed. Boy, this, this centurion is, is an amazing illustration of what can happen when somebody is, it hears about Jesus from somebody who knows Jesus. See, this is, I don't know the details, and when I get to heaven, I can ask him, but I can guarantee you one thing. This centurion did not learn about Jesus from religious people, because he's got inside information that the people he went to to go on behalf of him don't even seem to have. He says, for I also, underline in your Bible if you're saved, also, for I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to me, to one go and he goes and another come and he comes and to another do this and he does it. In other words, also is the critical, critical word in verse eight. What does this mean also? This centurion understands he's not worthy. He understands Jesus has supernatural power to say something and it will happen. And he also understands, big concept, big thought, Jesus is under authority. Now, I would be willing to bet you that there are people here this morning, you don't even understand that. You read that and say, well, what does that mean? Let me explain something to you. Jesus does not come on His own authority. Let me tell you what Jesus says in John chapter 4. He says, My food, my existence is to do the will of Him who sent me and to finish His work. He goes on in John 5 and He says, I can do of myself nothing. This is Jesus Christ, Son of God, incarnate on earth with all power and all authority. And He says, On my own, I can do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Jesus is a man under authority, and unbelievably, this centurion gets that. He realized this is no prophet. This is no man who's just come, who has knowledge of God. This is a man under direct authority of the God of the universe standing on earth right before us. This is an unlikely centurion with an unbelievable faith. Look at verse 9. When Jesus heard these things, you see, the same reaction I have to this text, the same reaction you have to this text, Jesus hears these things and he marveled at it. He marveled at the centurion. He turns around and says to the crowd, all these people who are following behind him, all these people who are clamoring around him, he turns around and says to them, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. There is something unlikely. There is something that's not normal about what's going on with this centurion. And those 
who were sent returned to the house and found the servant was healed and no longer sick. This word marveled. I want you to understand, underline that if you're saved. Marveled, thumazu in the Greek. This word is very common in the New Testament. Thumazu comes up, it, it means to, to be amazed by something. Now, it's all over the New Testament. Most of the time, Thumazu comes up when, when Jesus does something and there's people around, they're amazed that Jesus did that. Jesus walks on water, they're amazed. Jesus stops the wind from blowing and the sea makes it calm, they're amazed. The blind see, the lame walk, he, they're amazed. But Jesus is the one who's amazed in this story. Not the people. You see, Jesus has been amazed before, but not in a good way. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus goes to Nazareth and He marveled because of their unbelief. That's where He was unable to perform many miracles because of their unbelief. He marveled at that. But Jesus here marvels at the faith of a centurion. Would Jesus marvel... At your faith this morning? Would he marvel at just the unlikely nature of, of, of who you are? And, and as you come to him with a spirit of poorness and humility and realize how incredibly unworthy you are, realize all that you've done to, to build this veil between you and the Lord who loves you, And yet God, in His love and grace and mercy, sent His Son and tore the veil, just as the choir song, that now we may be reconciled to this God. I I want us to go back for a minute. We, I want us to see something that's very, very important. Look back at verse 4 and verse 5. Why do the elders... Number one, agree to go to Jesus. You see, because you need to understand something. This is a Roman centurion. There's no love between the Romans and the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders are an occupied people. The centurion represents the occupying force. In other words, the enemy of the Jewish leaders is the Roman centurion. And yet he comes to them and he asks them to go to Jesus on their, on his behalf. And they agree and they go. But even more unbelievable than that, look at what the Bible says. They beg. They beg. In other words, they just don't go to Jesus. They don't just go, okay, well, Jesus, here's the thing. This guy, this Roman guy over here, you know, whatever, he's got a sick slave. You think you can help him out? That's not how this goes. They beg. They plead with Jesus. Why? What is this union all about? Why do these elders respond to this centurion this way? Because Jesus is giving you and me a picture of what wrong faith looks like. I want you to see this. I want you to see what they say. They say He is deserving He is 
worthy. They say the very opposite of the person who they go to speak on behalf of. They say that because of what he's done, because he loves our nation, in other words, he has been good to us. He doesn't persecute us. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't torment us. He's good to us and he gives money to the church. He built a synagogue. Jesus, you've got to heal the servant because this is a good man who's done good things. Wow. He's a good man. He's a generous man. He's a caring man. He cares about his servant. Certainly that would would merit you, Jesus, just saying the word and healing his slave. I meet people all the time that are really, really nice people. They're generous. They're caring. Everyone who knows them would say, now those are good people. They're so, they're just good. They just do the right thing. They obey the laws. They try to help people who are in need. They raise their kids right. They mow their grass on time. They, they're just good. I mean, they're good neighbors. They work in their community. But those people are all around us, aren't they? And you know what? They truly, with all sincerity, in the, to the depths of their heart, they believe that at the end of their life, Because they're such good people and because they constantly remind themselves that they're surrounded by people who aren't as good as them, that God is going to give them a pass. That you see, all the goodness that they've accomplished and all the goodness that they are, God is going to look at that. I mean, what God would not reward such goodness? See, this is the exact trap. The exact same trap that these religious leaders have fallen into. Everyone in this story, you must hear this. Everyone in this story believed in God. All of them believe in God. They even believe that Jesus has the power to heal. All of them. But what a difference in these two faiths. What an unbelievable division that comes forth as you actually look and analyze what's going on. They believe in God. They believe Jesus can heal. He's a good man. And you know, if you're a good person, God will do good things for you. That just sounds good. But here's the problem. The Bible says that there's not one just man on earth who does good. Not one. The book of Ecclesiastes, Ezekiel says this. In Ezekiel 18, 20, it says, No soul who sins, the the soul that sins shall die. So unless there's a soul out there that's sinless, it's going to die. That the wages of sin are death. That there's, there's no amount of goodness that can erase sin. You can do good, you can do good, you can do good, you can do good. But one mistake is sin. And all the good in the world cannot erase sin. Goodness will not work. The Bible never says good people go to heaven. The Bible says saved people go to heaven. There's a huge difference here. And this story shows the intersection between people who have all the information but are going to utterly and completely miss heaven. And the person who is totally unlikely 
The last person anyone would think, but who gets it, who understands that Jesus is Lord, who comes to Him poor in spirit and humble and knows that He's unworthy and knows that Jesus can just say the word and His servant is healed. This centurion, Jesus marvels at His faith. He marvels. He's given us an illustration. This is how you live the life I'm calling you to live in the kingdom of God. This is marvelous faith. That's what this whole story is about. And so if you're here this morning and all of your hope, all of your confidence, 100% of your faith is not bound up in Jesus alone, you're not going to heaven. You must hear me. You are there. I know there are good people here. Good people who do good things, who love people and who are generous and who are honest and who are law-abiding. But it will matter nothing in the day of judgment if you are not completely and utterly grounded in Jesus Christ. When someone comes to you and says, hey, what's going to happen to you when you die? Hey, how do you know you're going to go to heaven? Hey, whatever the question is, the answer is always the same. Jesus It's no other thing. Don't tell them you go to Michael Memorial. That won't get you to heaven. Don't tell them you read your Bible every day. That won't get you to heaven. Don't tell them you pray all the time. It won't get you to heaven. Don't tell them you give money to good things. You work with orphans. You serve in the soup kitchen. It will not matter. It's got to be Christ and Christ alone. The only way to heaven is Jesus Christ. Now think about this. In just a few minutes, we're going to... We're going to take the Lord's Supper. Do you know what's underneath this covering? Do you know that God's only called us? He's given us two ordinances. One is the Lord's Supper. The other one is baptism. When you're baptized, you're baptized in the death, burial, and resurrection of who? Is there any other name associated with baptism? Under here, there's two elements. There's bread that's broken that represents the broken body of who? There's juice that represents the blood spilled out of who? Is there any other name associated with that? What's God trying to tell us? There's only one name that matters. There's only one thing that saves. Jesus Christ saves. No other name, no amount of good works, no amount of religious information can ever get you to heaven. Please hear what I'm saying. I've pleaded with you in the last seven weeks to to love your enemies, to forgive those who persecute you, to be generous to people. All of, But listen, it doesn't matter apart from Jesus Christ. Jesus is showing us this is the necessary ingredient. This is the key. Faith is everything. It's everything. It's not Jesus and other things. It's just Christ and Christ alone. One more thing I want you to see. I want you to see in verse 4, when they come to Jesus and they beg Him earnestly, and notice what happens in verse 6. Then Jesus went with them. Now, I don't know about you, but... do, do Do you understand what that means? Do you see that this is the God of the universe? This is Jesus Christ 
who is going to the cross to die for the sins of the world. And here is the most unlikely petition. Here is a Roman centurion, a persecutor of the Jews, of which Jesus is one. This is somebody who is an occupying, oppressing force against the people of Israel. This is somebody who is a religious outsider. This is somebody who would walk into a place like this and feel utterly and completely out of place. That a lot of things I say you're not really sure about. You don't really pick up your Bible and open it up because it sort of freaks you out. Listen to me. This person who is just like you, this is just like me. I knew nothing. I was so unworthy. I was so rotten and so lost and so depraved and so rotten. Jesus stopped heard this cry and went with them. That is unbelievable to me. Our God loves people so much that He stops what He's doing in the midst of all that's going on around Him. And He goes to the centurion's house. He heals the servant. That is unbelievable. Listen, do you think that this? there's any chance that this God who does this for this man would ignore your cry this morning. There's no way. If you realize this morning that you're unworthy, you're unworthy, and that all the good things that you do are good, but they won't get you to heaven. And you realize, you know, maybe I've been grabbing onto other things. Maybe I've been holding on to Jesus with one hand. I've been holding on to other things with another hand. And my faith has never really been amazing before. Listen, do you think there's any chance this God who went with them would ignore you? You come to Him this morning and He'll heal you. He'll heal you with an incorruptible seed that will never die. He'll place His Spirit within you. He'll give you a reason to never fear. He'll, he'll, he'll give you assurance that when you lay your head down at night that you belong to Him and Him alone. Not because of anything you brought to the table, but because you're putting everything in His name. Everything. All of it. Sometimes I cannot sleep. I lay awake at night and I think about the good people who may hear me preach and go to hell. Please, please, place your faith in Jesus alone alone. Let's stand and bow our heads and close our eyes. Father, we come, Lord, we come before you and Lord, thank you for, thank you for this centurion. Lord, thank you for what you are teaching us, Lord. Thank you for the reminder, God. Thank you that that you providentially orchestrated events in our lives as a body of believers, Father, that we would, we would study this passage just before we took the Lord's Supper. What an amazing reminder 
of what a glorious Savior you are and what unworthy people we are. But God, you, you gave us faith, Lord. Faith to know you, faith to love you, faith to walk in the power of your Spirit, Lord. Faith to accomplish things in your name and for your glory, Lord. So, Father, I I pray right now with everything within me, Lord. God, we as a church family, we pray that you would come and you would you would touch the lives of those who are here who are struggling. Lord, there's maybe someone here is struggling with their assurance of salvation and they're, they've done some things in the past and, and Lord, they've done some good things for you and they've been around you, but Lord, their faith has never been placed in you. God, would you save those who are apart from you this morning? Would you... Would you hear their cry, God, and, and stop and, and go their way? And Lord, right now, just as your Spirit moves about this place, would you, would you just lead them up here to you, Father? Lord, for those of us in this room who are believers, we all, God, before we come and sit at your table, Lord, we, we need to repent before you, Lord. We need to be reminded of our unworthiness we need to confess to you how great and good you are lord and how apart from you what an utter disaster we would be oh lord thank you for reminding us this morning how good it is to to know you and to love you thank you lord for the the inexpressible joy that comes from being able to call you lord so father will you move in this time as only you can We pray in Jesus' name.